but then, you know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the original Long Island Iced Bee. Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, tonight's going to be a night of, and I'm going to quote the great Ernie Ladd, sitting under the learning tree, Mr. Podcast Announcer. So in, in the course of 127 episodes, I've done impersonations of Bill Clinton, Stu Hart, Pedro Morales, Ronald Reagan, and now Ernie Ladd. This is just things for you to consider because I know you're working up my new contract. Now, speaking of my new contract, uh, Dan and Benny of the Ring is now in its fourth season, one more than Gilligan's Island, and actually two more than the Monsters. So I am publicly demanding Marsha Brady money at the very least. You know, I'm not even making Mr. Ed money. And, you know, speaking of Mr. Ed, I actually chatted with him today. He was having lunch at the, uh, the Palomino Club in uh, Hollywood, and uh, I, I told him how much I, I was making. You know what he said? What did he say? He said, that's a lot of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Wilbur. Oh, jeez. Well, the, uh, the new, it's funny, the, uh, the new contract negotiations, because we'll, uh, we'll see, we'll see how the rest of the year plays out. I know that we've got, um, a lot of, uh, what, what do they say? We're, we're, we're not at the trade deadline yet, so. Right. Yeah. But I'm kind of I'll, I'll have to call. A new contract. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll call up, uh, you know, Jim Ross or, or Jim Cornette or somebody and tell them I'll give them Benny for two third-round draft picks. <laughs> a trade. But, you know, uh, all jokes aside, Benny, we always, uh, you know, you, you said fourth season. I know we we kind of decided that, that WrestleMania season would be the start of the new year. Because uh, that's when a lot of stuff happens, both mainstream and not. And in those couple seasons, we've been doing this just now, you know, better part of uh, over two years that uh, we've uh, we, we've done a lot of stuff, especially with history. And we've always covered the territories and we've loved that kind of stuff. And we've got a really unique one. You were saying before we got to recording tonight that we're probably going to touch on a lot of stuff that most wrestling fans don't remember or, or hadn't heard of because it wasn't as as. Well, I, I should say, well, uh, renowned, but, but it's not covered as much as you'd think. So uh, why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us and what we're talking about tonight. Absolutely. So our guest is a noted wrestling author and historian. He's the author of Bruiser, the world's most dangerous wrestler, uh, published by Crowbar Press. Tonight we'll be talking about the Chicago Wrestling Club, a very significant uh, joint promotion that was around from 1966 to 1983. And here to tell us all about it is Mr. Richard Vicek. Richard, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you, Dan and Benny. It's great to be here and tell the story of the Windy City Chicago Wrestling Club, which which ran from 1966 to 1983. You know, Richard, the uh, I mentioned the the Chicago Wrestling Club doesn't get as much press as as it should, given its, its historical significance. Um, 
And, and really, the Chicago Wrestling Club has a huge historical significance in the history of professional wrestling that we're going to get into as the show goes on. Mm-hmm. But before we get into the formation of, of the Chicago Wrestling Club, uh, 1966, can you give our listeners a brief history of wrestling in the Chicago area pre-1966? Sure. Well, in 1949, a very famous old-school wrestling promoter named Fred Kohler, who was a member of the NWA, started promoting wrestling at the International Amphitheater, usually every three or four weeks, and at the Marigold Arena every, every week. Uh, the Marigold shows were broadcast nationwide on the now-defunct Dumont Television Network up till 1955. The International Amphitheater main events were filmed by the play-by-play announcer Bill Davis and were syndicated around the country. So a lot of 1950s TV was uh, originated in Chicago. And that doesn't mean, you know, I know we had Hollywood Legion Stadium for, you know, for a time. And, hey, on these cards, those are the cards where young Vern Gagne, Rocca, Fez, Rogers, Snyder, Bruiser, and Schmidt were among the star performers. And that promotion of Fred Kohler culminated on June 30th, 1961 at Comiskey Ballpark, where Buddy Rogers defeated Pat O'Connor. It was one of the, at the time, the biggest wrestling gates, 148,000 with 38,000 fans. That show was co-promoted by Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, So they were at the top of the world. But unfortunately, not all good things come to an end. Kohler lost his TV outlets. He left the NWA, created his own belt. He lost the top wrestlers. The crowds went down, down. And Kohler brought in the notorious Jack Pfeffer for for eight months, trying to restart rekindle wrestling relying on fake copycat sound alike names oh that's like, the guy okay <laughs> yeah bummy rogers haystacks Muldoon, i think yeah yeah hobo brazil <laughs> so so Kohler was really down was really at a low point in early 1964 So, um, Richard, how did how did it come to be? Because you have Vern Gagne from the AWA, and then you have Wilbur Snyder and uh, Dick the Bruiser from the uh, the WWA, the World Wrestling Association. Mm-hmm. All three of them in 1966. I mean, if there was a Matt Rushmore of wrestling for the year 1966, I would think the, all you know all three of them would be on big on that. So, if you could, and uh, yeah. you know, most most of our listeners probably know a bit about Gagne and probably something about. Uh, bruiser wilbur snyder doesn't really get i don't think 
the uh, you know the, the the accolades that he deserves. He he was top notch. Yes. So if you can maybe yeah. give us a quick uh, uh, sure. biography of the three, and then also how did they come to, to you know to make an agreement to form the Chicago Wrestling Club? Good. Well, Dick the Bruiser is really William Franklin Atlas, born in Indiana, was an all-state high school football guard, went to Purdue, and then spent four years with the Green Bay Packers. Started wrestling in Minnesota in 1955. Wilbur Everhard Snyder, born in California, was all-region high school tackle at Van Nuys High School. He played football at the University of Utah, also wrestled at Utah, and then spent two seasons with the Edmonton Eskimos okay. of the Canadian, then the Canadian Football League. And that he started wrestling in 1953. Vern Gagne was an all, all, from Minnesota, an all-state football high school uh, and wrestler, too, in high school. Uh, achieved success in college at Minnesota in both football and wrestling. In fact, him and he was in the 1948 game between Bruiser, Minnesota and Purdue. Bruiser played for Purdue and Gagne and Leo Namalini played for Minnesota. Wow. And Gagne was drafted by the Chicago Bears that elected to wrestle and started out in Texas. All of those guys were main event wrestlers for Kohler, as I already mentioned. And in 1964, Kohler invited Bruiser and Snyder to be minority partners with him in Chicago, and they made steady progress. And by the time 1965, late 65 came along, Ganya was brought in and bought out Kohler. So we have a new corporation, Chicago Wrestling Club, uh, and they had a frontman promoter, sort of like the face of the outfit in Chicago, named Bob Luce. That name sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. yeah there's a lot of Bob Luce on YouTube. <laughs> no. Really quick follow-up question, and this like really has nothing to do with what you just said, but wasn't Wilbur Snyder the father-in-law of uh, Steve Regal? Not the original, yeah. you know, uh, William Regal, but but Steve Mr. Regal, Mr. Electricity. Electricity. Who re- yes. Okay, yes. That's, that is true. And Wilbur Snyder is my next project, along with, and then I have a partner, the Gene Kaniski biographer. Oh, wow. Steve Verrier. And that's being that's in the in the review stage. You know, everything, uh, all pages written, all photo right paid for. So we're working on that. But yeah, Snyder was Mr. Electricity's father-in-law. The the daughter of Wilbur Cindy and Steve Regal both went to Pike High School in Indianapolis. I think they graduated maybe 1970 or something like that. And they're still married in an Indianapolis suburb. They've been married over over 50 years. That's crazy. You're right about, well, you know, Wilbur worked, was a partner with Bruiser, who was a 
more flamboyant, loud persona. Wilbur was like mild-mannered Clark Kent. <laughs> so who and who gets most of the magazine articles? Bruiser. Did did um did Wilbur ever win the WWA championship? Because I know that Bruiser won it. I I don't know what seventeen yeah, times. More. Did, or at least, I right? I think there was a short period where he won at once. I, you know, I, I know have he, the Wikipedia okay. in front of me. But he, it's either 12 or 14 times, he co-held the tag team. He, yeah, he would. And who was that with, though? Who was his partner? Was it Bruiser or was it? A couple Bruiser, a couple Dominic Danucci, a couple Pepper Gomez. That's right, Dominic. Uh it's uh, I, there could have been one or two with Cowboy Bob Ellis. There, there could there could have could have been one with Spike Huber, who was Bruiser's son-in-law. Right. So yeah, Wilbur had lots of partners. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about getting out of the gate, hit the ground running. The initial. Uh, Excuse me. The initial uh, CWC card was January 8th, 1966, as we talked about uh, the International Amphitheater. The main event was Dick the Bruiser against NWA champion Gene Kanitsky, who had won the title from Lou Thez. I believe it was just the night before. Um, yeah. I mean, this having the, your, the main event of your first joint card like this be for the NWA title against the guy who beat Lou Thez. I mean, that had to give the promotion instant credibility. Uh, oh, I was hoping certainly did. And I was hoping I regretted, you. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I regretted as a fan because after that, Kaniski never returned, nor did any NWA champion during the era of the Chicago Wrestling Club. But I thought that was uh, a nice touch. Kaniski had been there in 1965, many bouts against Wilbur Snyder, his old. Canadian Football League teammate, and uh, so that was a that was a great touch. And all three of the wrestling club partners were in main events that night, and that's and then that's where they instituted their payoff system. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you could expand on that, the or at least talk about it. The the graduated payout system that they established was unique. Uh, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Sure. And I sort of, I don't want to say uncovered, but I was provided with 10 payoff sheets from 1974 to 77. And I, I made a big spreadsheet. Where, where was the wrestler slotted? What was that wrestler's percentage of the uh, the pool of wrestling money, wrestler money, which was about 30%, at least during the 1970s, where I had hard evidence. And I worked in finance for a job, so that I had some work skills for that. And I'll just go from top to bottom. <clears throat> for instance, if one of those owners was in the main event and no of and the other owners were wrestling somewhere else, that that owner got six percent of the of the the share, you know, of the 
the wrestlers share. Not of the house, right? Just, they got six oh, yeah. percent okay. of that. They got six percent of that. Okay. Of the house. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, if if an owner was wrestling somewhere else, for instance, if, if Vern Gagne was in the main event in Chicago, and Bruiser and Snyder were running their own show in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Bruiser and Snyder each got one and a half percent from the Chicago box office. And they still got whatever they got in, 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 in Indianapolis. When all three guys were on the card, each owner got 3% of the wrestler's pool. Now, some big name wrestlers such as uh, Ray Stevens or the Sheik, people like that, if they were in a solo main event against Bruiser, let's say, they got they got a 4% payoff. So these, uh, by the way, a main event manager got 1.5%. The lowest percent was a quarter, 0.25, a quarter basis point. And that went to an opening match manager. But so that's okay. so, so, you know, every, you could see people would battle and I'm sure lobby to get the big uh, payouts. And that was the advantage of those three guys being the owners of that company for seven years. Because guess who they booked in almost all the main events? <laughs> Themselves. Yes. And hey, when you, you know, eventually, uh, anyway, so yeah, that worked, that worked out that way. And plus, they got dividends paid out that night for the general net income of the card. So after paying for their TV allotment, for printing the programs and arena rentals, uh, the TV time slots, there was there was a dividend paid out to to the owners also. So, you know, I don't have their tax returns, uh, but they each of those guys easily made a, over a hundred thousand dollars a year plus in an era where a working man maybe made fifty five hundred dollars a year. Yeah, they were living large, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not knocking them for it either. That's no. that's that's why I went there to, to see those those three guys or someone they brought in the feud with. You know, whether it's Doctor Rex or Mad Dog Bashan or Hennig and Race or Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan, who was one of the most valuable persons in the history of the Chicago Wrestling Club, in my opinion. Well, yeah, because he was both the wrestler and a manager, correct? Oh, yeah. And he would get double pay. He would get his manager slot, and he would say he would get his mid-card wrestler payoff. Both. It must have been a pretty well-paying territory because when Bruno, uh, after he, uh, actually before he went back for a second reign, when he was kind of taking it easy uh, in 73, before he beat Stan Stasiak, he wrestled there with Bruiser, right? As the uh, they yeah. were the tag team champions. Yes, he uh, not in Chicago. Yes, in Indianapolis. 
Okay, he didn't wrestle at in, for the CWC. Yeah, he did. He did. Okay. Uh, but I will get in the question four. I will get into the AWA versus WWA belt. Actually, that's next. So, well, <laughs> uh, hang on. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Dan. Oh no, I was sure, just going to say okay. I wanted to. Um, I've always been the uh, I've always been the math and numbers guy. Um, mm-hmm. You were talking about income. If anybody cares, not a. Uh, Twenty-five thousand dollars back then is the is just under two hundred and forty grand in today's money, which wow, you know. So so I mean, you're you're talking about and and that's just dollar amount. That doesn't include costs. So I mean, you, these guys were, as they say, high on the like Benny was saying, high on the hog in an era when, I mean, not just not just the average person didn't make a lot of money, but it was almost impossible to be a full time wrestler and and retire well. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody was eating ramen under, noodles. A lot of the undercard guys for Bruiser and Snyder had second day-to-day jobs. Yeah. Tom Lynch drove a beverage truck. Prince Poems was a security guard in a pawn shop. Even Big Bill Miller worked as a veteran. He was a vet, yeah, Dr. Bill Miller. In a some kind of meat processing plant. And Sailor Art Thomas worked in the Oscar Meyer Wiener factory in Madison, <laughs> Wisconsin. Wow. You, you know, it's funny. We've we've talked about it on the show before. It wasn't just wrestlers. Back in the 60s and 70s, all mainstream athletes, I mean, NFL, baseball, Hall of Famers, they all mm-hmm. had second jobs in the offseason. You, you yeah. hear stories about these you know, legends that are considered some of the best to ever play the game and their big signing bonus was $750. Like it was just unheard of how little money athletes made back then. The famous football player in the sixties from Philadelphia, Chuck Bednarik. Yes. Mm -hmm. What drove a cement mixer truck. Sometimes part time during the, work week during the football season yep yogi Berra and uh mm-hmm. joe garagio they worked at uh sears in yep. the off season mm-hmm. but wow. yeah that was interesting the chicago wrestling club was formed two promotions the guys behind two promotions the awa and the w wa joined forces so richard um how did that work so you had because i know that there were uh several champion versus champion matches during the history of the territory um i and i can only imagine a match between uh dick the bruiser and bashan which i think several of those did occur in uh, 1966 uh, and you know back then it was the wrestling was very real to the fans mm-hmm. so i can only imagine what kind of crowd reaction they got Mm-hmm. Well, Mad Dog Bashan won the, the deciding AWA versus WWA belts in Chicago in early 1966. From that point on, only the AWA singles and tag belts were shown on TV in Chicago or displayed at the International Amphitheater. Now, in Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Kara Holt, uh, 
all of those WWA cities, they still went on normally with their normal champ tag and singles belts. But from that point, there was one mistake one, one in like 17 years where they were doing a spot show. And for some reason, Baron Von Raschke was wearing his WWA belt for a high school show, a, a promo. You know, he just forgot to take off the belt or something, you know. But, yeah, from then on, there was a definite uh, distinction. No, it, no WWA belts in Chicago. And oh, I can't leave out Mad Dog Vashon versus Dick the Bruiser on May 21st, 1966. I was nine years old. I was taken to the International Amphitheater and they had a Congo death match, non-title. And that's the first time I saw ketchup at a wrestling match. <laughs> and it was, I got hooked for life seeing that and hearing the crowd just roar. We want blood. Wow. And in the, in the International Amphitheater, uh, at the mezzanine in, the, in front of the first mezzanine level and in front of the balcony level were these big sheets of sheet metal that, you know, would keep people from falling through the cracks. Well, everyone then would start kicking these things. It was like a hundred kettle drums. The, the pandemonium in there. <clears throat> When, you know, Bruiser's got his hands on a head of, full head of hair of Heenan, raised his fists and started looking at the crowd. I mean, I, I, I hope that gives you an idea. You know, and then Heenan would be whipped pillar the post. He was a human bump machine back in the day, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. And if there's a Mount Rushmore of Chicago Wrestling Club, Heenan is on it with those three owners. <clears throat> because even after Heenan jumped to the AWA for several years, he still appeared in Chicago as an AWA performer. So we got to see Heenan from 1966 to 1983. Wow. Except for a few months in 79 when he went to Georgia. So He's on that Mount Rushmore, if you ask me. So just out of curiosity, Richard, what is a Congo death match? It's almost just like a Texas death match. You know, falls, uh, falls don't count. It's till someone can't continue. Uh, there must have been something political about the Congo. In the, the Congo, yeah. You know, the, it was an African country. I don't even know if it's, it's changed its name, but yeah, it, basically no disqualifications. Falls can falls can happen inside the ring, outside. I don't remember a referee being in there. There may have been a pinfall, but that was all that was was a rest period. And so, okay. and then, and then maybe a ten count. Yeah, if you couldn't answer a ten count, that was it. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talk about calling for blood uh, during 
this this era of wrestling tag teams were a huge thing significantly more than today i mean all the territories every major promotion featured tag team wrestling uh mm -hmm. many times the main event feud was a tag team feud or tag mm -hmm. team matches were the main event and obviously the chicago wrestling club had two really mount rushmore tag teams and we were talking about mount rushmore earlier one was race and henning and the other being the Bruiser and the Crusher. Uh, both of these teams, multiple time AWA tag champs. So uh, kind of tell our listeners a little bit about this rivalry, sort of expand on it. Um, and like you said, you know, fans calling for blood, maybe without upsetting the fan at heart, just how how much of a bloodbath literally some of these matches were. Yeah, all four of them juiced. Of course, they probably had, you know, 12,000 feet sold averaging about four dollars so uh they would probably get and uh but yeah uh the first negative thing no film or video exists with these guys wow. it was before bob luce started filming uh but you know i i interviewed hennig in 2009 and he said that was his most memorable matchup. Race, uh, in his own in his autobiography, said, though he was he didn't like the fact that Hennig and Race were portrayed as sissies, the Dolly sisters. Dolly sisters, right? You know, but you know what? Hennig and Race were the better technical wrestlers. In fact. Uh, Rate said in his autobiography, Bruiser got his technical wrestling degree from a Cracker Jack box. <laughs> uh, hey, I remember in 2010, I talked to the late Sir Oliver Humperdinck, who was an usher for some of these matches. And he said, quote, people went apeshit. This, like you said, I would consider that the the tag team feud of the 1960s. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. In, in Chicago, and also the historian George Shire speaks extremely high of Henning and Rapes too. Uh, George George is a friend of the show. He's been on many many oh, yeah. times. He is yeah. We love we love that's George. I, and that's how I heard about you guys. Okay. George. Oh. Thanks, George. George must actually like this. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, Richard, uh, one of the other uh, excellent, you know, feuds that took place was uh, Vern Gagne uh, versus Dr. X. And Dr. X's real identity was Dick Byer. But it, it, for the most part, most most fans, you know, back in the day knew him as the destroyer. This had to be like an incredible rivalry because two of these, oh, yeah. these, these are two of the greatest of all time. Bayer appeared in mid-1967 four times at the amphitheater as the destroyer. But then after some bouts, uh, Gagne and him met for a drink at the Playboy Club in downtown Chicago. And Gagne said, why don't you wrestle as Dr. X, a new identity? Then... If you would get, if you would lose and leave the territory and unmask, you still have your destroyer gimmick to fall back on. 
and which he did. And it was an ingenious way of booking and building up this feud. It started with four weeks in a row of Dr. X sitting in the front row of the TV wrestling in Minneapolis. Then he'd walk over to the announcer, hey, I want to I want to wrestle one of your so-called big names here. I'm sorry, sir, will you please be seated? That kind of thing. And eventually, Dr. X jumped into the ring, sneak attack on Vern, put the figure four leg lock on him. And that started what I consider was the feud of the 1960s singles in Chicago. And they built it up real good with Dr. X defeating Bruiser and Crusher before several matches against Gagne. And the thing about Dr. X, was it was unusual, I thought. He wrestled scientifically with the best of them. But then he would intersperse some cheating. With You know, it was a, a unique combination. You know, like something that was admirably practiced by Nick Bockwinkle, you know, five or six years later when Bockwinkle came to the AWA. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think I've heard this on your show. You recognize how Dr. X was one of the first wrestlers to sell merchandise, masks, cigarette lighters, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. And he took out ads in wrestling magazines. Definitely ahead of his time. Yeah. And I I still have my Dr. X mask. Well, you know, Benny mentioned, uh, obviously, Ganya, Dr. X, and the names. I mean, besides some of the legends, and then we, we talked to tag teams, besides some of the legends we've already discussed, the, the Chicago Wrestling Club roster could be literally its own Hall of Fame. Uh, please tell, I mean, kind of expand a bit, because I know I certainly I've only seen clips and highlights uh, expand about some of the other wrestlers that we haven't talked about that have made contributions uh, throughout you know the run. Okay, in the 1960s, Keenan, Rashi, Moto, and Irakawa, Angelo Paco, Johnny Powers, Ernie Ladd, Johnny Valentine, Butcher Bichon. And then when the 70s rolled in, it was the Sheik, the Blackjacks, the Valiants, Bachwinkle and Stevens, Bruno, Andre, Billy Robinson, the High Flyers, Brody, Superstar Graham, Rhodes and Murdoch, Patera, Koloff, Wahoo, the Legionnaires, Ox Baker. And then in the 80s, they had Ventura and Adonis, Hulk Hogan, Jerry Blackwell, Mr. Saido, Sheik Adnan, Casey, Tito Santana, Rick Martel. How's that for a list? That is a who's who of wrestling for sure. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, there were some re- wrestling magazines had an occasional uh, feature on Chicago wrestling. So there were sometimes you'd see something. And, of course, a lot of heen and bloody face covers. <laughs> Looks like a crime scene. Yeah. 
So in the 70s, uh, there were many huge events that took place at either uh, Comiskey or Soldier, two at Soldier Field, two of them that I'm really interested in. I, I can only imagine the, the, the carnage with a bruiser crusher versus blackjack steel cage match and the blackjacks were managed by heenan but the other one that really interested me was uh in on september 1st 1972 uh then awa champion Vern Gagne against ivan koloff who a year yeah. and a half before that had beaten bruno for the title yeah and koloff was a formidable challenger for Vern, with his koloff's manager was longtime awa uh guy the big k oh stan kowalski <laughs> oh yeah stan kowalski uh that cage match uh the referee was boxing former boxing champion jersey joe walcott oh wow i have pictures from you know that i bought i paid for photo rights of heenan they are too gory to submit to for book publication. Of course, I mean, he must have got a nice bonus for that. Uh, but yeah, the, the 1970 card was White Sox Park, Cage Max, Mad Dog and Butcher Vachon versus Bruiser and Crusher. And then Vern Gagne versus Baron Von Raschke. And, and just three and a half years before, Rasky was driving the ring truck. He was a shy, <laughs> wow. quiet guy, and he adopted the Baron character. And uh, after that, 1974, at back to White Sox, Vern against Billy Robinson, which sort of took after their their roles and their characters in the movie The Wrestler. Executive producer Vern Ganya. And that match, the other, the tag match was Bruiser and Bobo against the Sheik and Heenan. Of course, Sheik spent the whole night r- running away from Bruiser so they could set up future matches. But that was the bit. And then in 76, they br- by then, Bachwinkle was the AWA champion against Andre the Giant and another cage match. Bruiser and Crusher versus Black Jack Lanza and Bobby Duncan with Heenan. So that was the, those are the, at least the kind of main events that they'd have. Uh, well, and I, one thing I noticed, even though Wilbur Snyder would not be in one of those top two main events, he may have been on the fourth yard. He still, on, on many instances, got the same payoff as Bruiser and Ganya. Say you know the golden rule. He with the gold rule. Well, I mean, you talk about gold. The uh, the seventies again, another great era. Closed out with five Super Bowls of wrestling, which occurred from nineteen seventy five to nineteen seventy nine. I mean, this was years before WrestleMania. Um, mm-hmm. But we talked about it before. Uh, this may have been really the original because I believe this predated uh, some of the other perennial events was, as well this, like this predated starcade i was just about to say i believe it predated starcade as well this may have been i mean the original huge annual wrestling event um 
I mean, can you talk a little bit more about it? Because the five Super Bowls of wrestling, they're not exa- I mean, not exactly the easiest tapes to find. No. Oh, there are odds and ends, Bob Luce, things floating around YouTube. The family has 130 hours of film and videotape that Bob Luce did, by the way. Not all, not all of it has been published, you know. I understand there could be... There's legal obstacles, you know, getting releases. I don't know. Anyway, but anyway, these Super Bowls were either in November or December. They were attended by 10 to 12,000 people, depending on how they configured the chairs and the seating. Uh, starting in 1977, it was pretty exciting because when each uh, combatant, when the, each set of wrestlers entered the ring, they Bob Luce would play the disco version of Star Wars. That, <laughs> that move, uh, you know, and right, that's not the same as the John Williams Symphony version, but right. Nico was a recording company that did disco stuff. <laughs> you know, the, any, the mirror ball all that kind of stuff. And that was before every match. All of a sudden, that would be cranked out, you know, with the drums and the, they had the sound effects, you know, the, the, the lightsabers and the, the, the laser guns. It was pretty effective at that time. And, of course, those Super Bowls all included title bouts. And one of the frequent type of match was a handicap match, excuse me, a handcuff match where Heen, all right, where Heenan's team would be facing, let's say, Bruiser and Crusher. But Yukon Moose Cholock would be handcuffed to Heenan to prevent him from interfering with the match. They also did that with Super Destroyer 2 and 3. And I think Super Destroyer 2 was Sergeant Slaughter right. in 1979. So they had somebody handcuffed the Lord Alfred Hayes, their manager. And uh, they had seven or eight bouts on those cards. They expanded. And, uh, of course, it would include the best of AWA and WWA. Those promotions, I don't remember doing another card on the same night because they really went all out and they imported some people that we had never saw before such as Jose Lothario. He came in for a shot. Peter Maivia, Pedro Morales. So at the same time, they brought someone new that maybe we hadn't seen in person, but we surely knew about them from wrestling magazines. So they did that. They did that for the Super Bowls. So, Richard, in 1983, we saw the demise of the, uh, the Chicago Wrestling Club. Um, the last show at Comiskey Park was on July 18th. And uh, on July 18th, 83, I think Ganya was 54 and defeated a 45-year-old Bockwinkle for the championship. Do you think that had something to do with the demise of the CWC? Or do you think, you know, with, with Vince McMahon, uh, you know, pursuing world domination, that it was going to happen anyway, or it just kind of just ran its course. The AWA over the 80s 
faded out, you know, because of so many AWA stars leaving and because a lot of the former AWA TV slots taken over by Vince. But the Chicago Wrestling Club actually ended because Ganya wanted to promote AWA-only cards without having Bruiser and Snyder's people on the card. And eventually those two guys were bought out. And uh, and by the time the early 80s approached, the WWA people had less Chicago gigs. And I have a quote here from Larry Lasowski, who was an AWA uh, spot show promoter and son of the crusher that said the AWA at this time was still a major promotion with with deep talent. But Ganya and I add this, Ganya did not need WWA anymore. And of course, Wilbur and Wilbur, Wilbur and Dick eventually faded out uh, with the with the WWA and yes they did not those two guys did not promote younger stars in 1980 Dick and Wilbur were 50 Moose Cholock was 49 Bobo was 56 wow and eventually they went out of business and of course the AWA went down gradually during the 1980s right now, I mentioned the talent leaving and the TV slots taken over, and you know that was the uh, that was the end of that. And you know, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the the things that often gets cited when they talk about the demise of the AWA was other than the the attachment to the old talent was Ganya's he couldn't adapt to the rise in popularity of some of the more carnival and fanciful antics that was helping the NWA and WWF at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. As Vince McMahon used to say, he'd rather sell you the sizzle than the steak. Um, Mm -hmm. The last show, the final show at the Chicago Amphitheater was February 12th, 1983. And it featured, I mean, an appearance from Andy Kaufman. Uh, There was arm wrestling and an arm wrestling match between Hulk Hogan and Jesse Ventura. I mean, it seemed looking at the card, the final show at the amphitheater seemed more like the the spectacle carnival sizzle over steak of the WWF than than what uh, had been seen in Chicago before. Was that just a case of too little too late or was that an attempt to to do something else? That was. Yeah, yeah, that because that was the final Chicago wrestling club. Uh, And I'm going to, I'll chime, I'll agree, uh, too little, too late. And the thing that I was there that night, oh, wow. No, no Dick the Bruiser, no Wilbur Snyder, no Crusher, the guys who built that promotion and started wrestling in the amphitheater in the 1950s. The next card was in April at the UIC Pavilion, a new venue, all AWA guys. No, so it it was over with. Uh, and I remember seeing promoter Bob Loose just walking around the UIC Pavilion that night with the biggest frown on his face because 
know, his job was, he lost his job, you know, because he had nothing to do with, uh, there was no Chicago wrestling club for him to promote on his TV show, on his uh, individual TV show. Now, he did do some promotion of bruisers, bruiser spot shows, but that was it. Yeah. So. Richard, um, I, one of the last cards at the amphitheater, uh, I believe Bachwinkle defeated Otto Wands uh, yeah. for the championship. I don't think we ever asked George this, which we should have, but how did he become the champion? I, 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 I've never been able to understand that. According to multi, many podcasts and reports, that was a cash deal where Otto, uh, you know, paid Vern for the chance to hold the title. It was 41 days. He lost it in St. Paul. He, Bachwinkle lost it in St. Paul and won it back 41 days later on October 9, 1982 at the Amphitheater. In Bobby Heenan's autobiography, Heenan said he, didn't, he was in Bachwinkle's corner that night. He didn't have advance notice that Bach was going to drop the strap. But he did. It was, you know, maybe I have no idea why he would take money from that. I mean, I don't, you know, there's all this speculation. Well, he wanted to give the promotion an international flavor, or he wanted to add new life to it. But this, this Otto, uh, you know, the only unique uh, maneuver he had. You know how wrestlers would be thrown in a flying beel throw. Right. You know, the wrestler like tucks his head in and flips. He would do that to himself and land on the opponent. <laughs> I'm just saying that was his, one of his weakened moves to soften up the opponent. Against Bachwinkle, he reversed the pile driver and start, startling Nick. So that's how the belt was won. Okay. But yeah, that was that was a short experiment, and uh, you know, all these years, I never heard Greg Gagne give any explanation of that. But I don't know, maybe one of these days. You don't really hear a whole lot about it. It's kind of one of those things that happen without much of an explanation. It's, I've never been able yeah. to get it. Like it, I get maybe given the you know the promotion more of an international appeal, but Otto Wands, I mean, no, no. Well, I guess uh, as we wrap up, uh, Richard, final question. How should the Chicago Wrestling Club be remembered uh, by fans of old school wrestling? Well, it was a top-notch promotion for 17 years. And International Amphitheater developed a reputation for being one of the rowdiest venues for wrestling in the United States. Uh, A lot of the history of these matches have been preserved by frontman promoter Bob Luce starting in 1970. He has issued four VHS tapes. You may find them on eBay, maybe with about six hours of highlights uh, of that, that. And of course, we listed all of the Hall of Fame caliber wrestlers who wrestled 
on the Chicago Wrestling Club cards. On eBay, you could find the colorful and sensational International Amphitheater programs and posters. Uh, <clears throat> you know, they had a Hall of Fame exhibit behind the, the grandstands at the International Amphitheater, and they had a whole their own roster Hall of Fame going back to the 1950s. So it was a, a great territory to grow up in. I wasn't satisfied with that. I started trading VHS tapes and travel traveling. Uh, when I had when I used to have business trips on the East Coast, I would try to find out, okay, where is the WWF wrestling that weekend? So I I go to the you know, the Spectrum or oh I'd even go south into Crockett's territory in in Richmond or Roanoke Virginia. So anyway, it was a great promotion and uh, I hope I conveyed some of the enthusiasm for it. Absolutely. No, Benny and I love having these kind of shows. I mean, we have an entire series with our, our good friend Jim Phillips that we do on, on territories. And we always love the, the, the old school stuff. I mean, the second half of our, our tagline, you know, uh, of wrestling is, is, you know, celebrating its story past and mm -hmm. whether you, whether you like the current product or not, it wouldn't be here without the golden yeah. age and just how good these were. Mm -hmm. So um, I appreciate it. Um, Benny mentioned when we introduced you, uh, you're an author. Before we let you go, I'll give you a shot. Plug your book. It is called Bruiser, the most, the world's most dangerous wrestler from Crowbar Press. And uh, another project in the work is the biography of Wilbur Snyder. Uh, with, along with my partner, Steve Verrier, who wrote the biography of Gene Kaniski. Okay. Six, six months down the line, 12 months down the line, I could do the same type of presenta presentation for the WWA in Indianapolis, front to end. Sure. Wow. So real quick, Richard, and maybe like I, I, my memory's not correct, but wasn't Bruiser... Maybe it's not him. Banned from wrestling at the Garden for a while, Madison Square Garden, or do, is it somebody else? I don't know why I have that no, in my head. No, that. But he he'd always say that. But after that riot thing, he still had a couple uh, Garden appearances. But he would say that for years afterwards, you know, and that would uh, help. And uh, and real in reality. Once he was co-owners of sort of promotions in Chicago, Indianapolis, and of course he start, he challenged the Sheik in Detroit, and him being a, minor, a minority partner in Milwaukee, I don't know where he would have had any time to wrestle in the WWA, the WWF, or the Triple WF. Anyway, so, and Wilbur never wrestled in Madison Square Garden, but almost every, but a lot of other places, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. hmm. So anyway, 
Hey guys, thank you very much. And I appreciate you offering me this opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for your time. Um, a lot of good stuff out there. And this is another great episode where we got to discuss a lot of history. So our favorite. Thanks again, guys. All right. Absolutely. Thank, Richard. You. thank you so much for your time. Have a great evening. You too. Bye. Another great show, Benny. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, and number one, like the fact that the territory is so obscure when they really had, I mean, they had such a huge amount of talent um, and great cards. And I mean, you know, at, at pretty big venues, you'd think you would have heard more about it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really amazed that, you know, these guys got along so well. I mean, Ganya and then Bruiser and Snyder for 17 years. And when, uh, I guess it was the early 80s when they tried to form was the Pro Wrestling USA. And yeah. I think, wasn't it Ganya, Crockett, and Jarrett? The big super shows. Yeah, because that was when, right. uh, that was the story when, when Jerry Lawler won the AWA title and Ganya never paid him. Right. But I mean, would they last a year or two? They couldn't, they it, couldn't coexist. If that, yeah, the stories about them fist fights in the locker room because the people were straight up trying to hire each other's talent. Right. So, I mean, for these the guys to, yeah, to go to go strong for uh, for 17 years, not too bad. No, not at all. I mean, and and Ganya and Bruiser both have, uh, despite their legendary contributions, they both have reputations as, as people who didn't play kindly with others right. as far as business dealings go. So great stuff. And like you said, I mean, virtual Hall of Fame talent and the, the first ever big annual event. You know, the precursor to Starcade and WrestleMania. I mean, like you said, you know, tens of thousands of tickets, Chicago, huge venues for wrestling and a pay system that really was unheard of. And even better than what some of the I should say, maybe better, fairer than what a lot of the wrestlers today are being paid. I mean, if you were making six figures in the, the 60s or 70s, you, you were doing very well. Yeah, I mean, that's it's crazy. Like like I was saying earlier with the, uh, you know, he mentioned the the short end of twenty five thousand, you know, and it's 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 hard to believe because people they can't put it in. What, what's the word, Benny? They can't really put it in, uh, you a know, perspective or in perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're talking, you know, one hundred thousand dollars in 1966 is over 900 grand in today's money. I mean, these, these guys were, some of them were, were millionaires in, in an era, like we were saying, where Super Bowl and World Series winning baseball and, and football players were, well, I mean, NFL championships were, you know, driving trucks and working at grocery stores. You know, the fact that someone, someone like a Yogi Barrow uh, had a second job. I mean, that was uh, what made, it's such a unique deal with, with the contract Bart Starr signed where he was literally a full-time athlete and did nothing else. And that was unheard of. But, you know, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, you know, that, that Vince McMahon made wrestling better. If you were, if you lived in Chicago in the sixties and seventies, I mean, you, you had the amphitheater, you had the, you had Comiskey park, you had soldier field. I mean, you had, I mean, you, you yeah. watched some uh, quality wrestling quite often. It, it, it's and and then you had them and then you know like we we talked about before the you know how many times we mentioned the Memphis Coliseum on Mondays the idea that Vince brought wrestling out of the bingo halls and and the smoke filled parking lots is is a complete rewrite of history and fi and fictional to anybody with two sets of eyes and five seconds of research. Right. I mean, ask any Memphis fan in the eighties, the early eighties, right? If they think if they think it's better now that they can't go every week. I 
I was going to say you you have you, we, we, there were shows we were talking about 19 six, you know random show at Soldier Field or or the Fieldhouse in 1968 drawing bigger crowds than AEW's pay-per-view just did a few days ago. Right. You know, what can you do? So, Benny, uh, another great show. We got a lot of good stuff coming down the pipeline. Uh, you know, like I said, we've been out, out outward and upward as we always say and we continue um, we've got a lot of good in- interaction. Um, I don't know what triggered it? Maybe it was just the the nature of the picture. Uh, Javier gave me a uh, a photo of Andre arm wrestling Billy Graham that I posted on our page on our Dan and Benny page uh, that went viral. I mean, last I checked, it was hundreds of thousands of. I mean, it, it was uh, what I think it was three or four hundred thousand wow. uh, interactions, comments, reshares, like something about that picture and the conversation that went with it went viral. So I mean, hey, you know, like I said, we're, we're uh, now, I, I say I say it more often. Not too bad for, not too bad for a bit. Started with a couple of guys with two laptops and a microphone, huh? Or two microphones still, and a laptop, right? We still got to crack that top ten in multiple. We're getting there. Hey, if Jim Cornette said we can do it, and and, and I I want to call him out, and we're gonna get top ten in the Valley of of, of Tibet. So all all I know is when we hit number eight in Ireland, he was number fourteen. So there. <laughs> Hey, we got him. Our, our, our great UK fans strike again. There we so go. So for Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spash. I'll have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.